say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lady Justice is a true crime podcast, therefore deals with incidents of violence, disturbing imagery and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. The Lady Justice podcast offers their deepest condolences to victims' families and wishes to offer thanks to those who work in emergency services. Hello my lovelies and welcome to Lady Justice True Crime and the episode The Asylum Attendant. My name is Chantelle and thank you ever so much for joining me. In this episode, Euphemia Bryden, a 20-year-old nurse at Dyke Bar Mental Institute, was discovered murdered after she failed to arrive at work. Her killer, a male attendant at the same hospital, would claim that he'd been driven to insanity by his own patients. So, without further ado, here is some background on the location and time frame of this case. Come with me now on a journey through time and space to the year 1926, when the UK monarchy was headed by George V, and the Conservative government was led by Stanley Baldwin as Prime Minister. The year's news would be dominated by the general strike, which directly caused Parliament to declare martial law. 1926 would also see famed crime novelist Agatha Christie become the subject of a mystery when she disappeared during December. We are visiting Bonnie, Scotland this week, specifically the west-central town of Paisley. Paisley stands just north of the Glenifer Braes, a stunning set of hills, with the east side of the town bordering the city of Glasgow. The settlement has long held importance and was known as one of the more prominent religious sites in the area during its first few centuries. The Industrial Revolution brought a boom to the town, with weavers creating the town's most recognised export, a paisley shawl. Today it is known for its links with famous folk from arts, music and literature. 
As always, sources are listed in the show notes. It was just after her night shift ended at 6.30am on Thursday, July 22nd, that nurse Margaret Shearer Dodds, accompanied by a friend, Nurse McLean, went for a brisk walk towards Glenifer Brace. They had not gone for pleasure, but had gone in worry for another young nurse hadn't arrived for her shift. In fact, they knew she hasn't been in her bed all night. The nurse missing Euphemia Shannon Bryden, just 20 years old, having celebrated her birthday only a few days before. She had quickly become a part of the fabric of Dyke Bar since she took her appointment there in December of the previous year. She originally hailed from Lockerbie, 80 miles south, where she'd lived with her widowed mother and three siblings. Born on July 14, 1906, to Janet and James, she was the eldest of the Bryden children, being followed by two brothers and a little sister. James, a tailor, was a local celebrity, being known for being a champion sprinter, providing victories at border meets. He left his family in the family home, a red brick terrace property on Townhead Street, to join in the war effort when Euphemia, or Effie as she was affectionately known, was just eight in 1914. News was reached the Scottish family soon after that, that the beloved man had succumbed to malaria, soon after deployment on the Salonika front. Though the Bryden family had been through a lot, they were a strong unit and had great support from the community and their church, St Cuthbert's United Free Church. Euphemia was described as a quiet, well-meaning girl and bright, who was helpful and kind. She sang soprano in the church choir and taught at the Sunday school. A close friend of the nurse as she was growing up, Miss Copeland, called her very likeable but abrupt in manner, who had much attention in Lockerbie, being thrice attached in her hometown. Yet she had her heart set on nursing, so chose to leave for work. Paisley having been a good choice, with family being in both Glasgow and Wishaw. She was known as a responsible young woman, who never gave anybody any reason for worry or concern, so the disappearance of the nurse was highly suspicious. The two women didn't need to walk far before they came across some items on the road leading through Hollybush Farm. The track itself was a service road for the use of the farm and was only 200 yards from the main Paisley Barhead Road. A significant struggle had clearly taken place and although Miss Bryden was described as a strong, powerful woman, that it had not ended well. Laid there was a woman's hat, a handbag and a portion of black silk. The women instantly recognised the hat and the handbag. They belonged to the nurse they had been searching for. The black material, when looked at closer, would resemble a man's tie somewhat, but it had been torn away, the edges ragged. Near to the remnants of the tie was a large pool of blood. 
The nurses rushed back to the hospital where they would inform two male attendants of what they had found, asking them to accompany them back, hoping they could help Euphemia if they found her. The foursome then returned to the spot near some fields. Angus McIntyre, one of the male attendants who had travelled with the nurses back to the spot, would later speak of the following moments. We had not been on the job for more than a minute or two when we came on the body. It was lying under a windbush, almost out of sight, but could have been distinguished from the top of one of the passing tram cars. Nurse Bryden's body was covered by her dark grey tweed coat. Over the face and head was a jumper. I have been through some trying ordeals as an asylum attendant and in the army, but I will never forget my feeling of horror when the woman's dead body was exposed to my eyes. The face was covered with wounds and blood and almost unrecognisable. The post-mortem of the body was conducted by Dr Struthers and Dr Miller of Paisley in accordance with the instruction given by the fiscal. They would state that the official course of death was shock following rape and wounding of the head. The examinations conducted by the men would reveal that there was a wound to Euphemia's head where she'd landed upon a sharp stone. There were further injuries, however, to the body including ten wounds to the face, visible bruises on both sides of her neck, indicating that she'd also been strangled, and abrasions upon her right hand. News of the discovery was quickly relayed back to Dyke Bar, where Renfrewshire Constabulary were informed. As the police made their way to the scene, the hospital became a sombre place with the tragedy being spoken of in all the corridors and rooms. For 16 members of staff, it hit them particularly hard, as they, unbeknownst to them, would be the last people to spend time with Euphemia. The night before, Wednesday, there had been an outing arranged for some of the staff. It had been something that the younger staff had been keenly looking forward to, with special permission sought from the management to be allowed to stay out until midnight. A group of nine female nurses and eight male attendants had planned to have an evening picnic at the local beauty spot Glenifer Brace, but had also provisionally booked a hall space in nearby Barhead if the weather was to be typically British. The group had worked from 6am to 8pm that Wednesday and had gathered together just before 8.30pm to walk to the spot a little over two miles away. Two of the male attendants, Malcolm McLennan and Robert Handley, had arranged with the group to join them later as they had plans to visit a local public house and they arrived as the group had just settled around 930 When there, everyone was in good spirits as the night slowly drew in. One nurse, Flora McTavish McLarty, had been anxious about going to the picnic, worried it would just be couples, yet Euphemia had reassured her that she was also unattached and that the point of the outing was to have fun. The two attendants that had been drinking before they had arrived 
had also come with half a bottle of whiskey bought from the public house that they had shared together, but nobody was said to be drunk or in a bad mood. The picnic party stayed together laughing and joking for almost two hours before setting back to the hospital accommodations between five past and ten past eleven. I mentioned before that it was known that Euphemia had not returned at all that evening, which was known because during a check of the rooms and the staff, it was discovered that her bed was empty. A close friend of hers who was at the picnic had been awoken by another nurse at 3.30am to ask if they had seen her, which they had not. Putting a picture together of Euphemia's last known movements was vital to the investigators, led by Superintendent George Gray. Everyone other than the now-deceased nurse had been accounted for at the start of their shift. No one else had been missing. Talking with those people, it was said by all that she had been in the company of one of the party in particular, everyone seeing them last together arm in arm during the journey back, where they lagged behind. That man was Robert Handley, yet though the victim and Handley had been close that night, it was not unusual for the pair. For the weeks before the picnic, they had become closer, being seen to go on around five or six walks alone. They had been quite close, barring it for the four days before the outing, where they had a small disagreement, but everyone noted they were still on good terms. People at Dykebar believed that he was a nice man, with a nurse, Margaret Scholar, describing him as a quiet fellow, gently and kindly in manner. Though it was known that the pair were beginning to form the basis of a relationship together, Euphemia had not written home about the man she'd met at work. She had been in constant communication with her family, even when work meant she missed big events like her uncle's wedding. Not once had there been a mention of Handley in the letters to her childhood friend, Miss Copeland, or her mother. The last communication from Euphemia had been sent to her mother just previous to her death landing on the doorstep of her mother's the morning of the discovery. Miss Copeland would say, On the morning of the tragedy, her mother received a letter from her, and a few hours later, she was notified by the local police that she had been concerned in an accident. She went off post-haste to Glasgow. This said, He was the last person to be seen with Euphemia alive. The police would ask Robert Hanley to be removed from duty and escorted for interviews, yet as they arrived to where he should have been, he was gone. His supervisor explained that not too long before, Hanley had requested to leave to collect a collar and tie from his room and had not yet returned. Officers would then take the short walk to his room, located at the hospital, and knocked on the door. However, there was no answer. When entering the room, they soon realised they might have stumbled across their man. 
Inside were a number of blood-stained articles of clothing, including a raincoat that a witness would later identify as one worn by Hansley at the picnic the night before. Inside the pocket were Euphemia's keys that had been missing from her handbag. A search was made for him in the grounds, whilst officers spoke to those closest to him at work. A 21-year-old attendant by the name of Alexander McLean was questioned and it became apparent that although he had no idea where his friend was, he was indeed a valuable witness. He had been with Handley after he'd returned from the picnic when Handley awoke him at 1am. The suspected man had entered his room despite the lights being off and Alexander being asleep, to ask him a favour. McLean had known Handley for years and wasn't surprised by the early morning visit, though he was rather surprised to see Robert's shirt covered in blood. He'd asked him where the blood had come from, but Handley replied in a, quote, cool and collected manner, that on his way back he'd fallen over a gate. He had busted his nose and it bled badly. Hanley didn't seem drunk, but it was the middle of the night and dark. McLean took this excuse and thought nothing of it, much the same as when Hanley requested a loan of one pound. Alexander hadn't asked him what the money was for, it being a common practice between the two to help with loans when needed. The pair sat smoking and talking about the unimportant things at work and life for about an hour and 15 minutes. He last saw Handley at 7am when he'd come to his room and asked to borrow a bonnet, which McLean also did. He did not know where his friend was, but he did give details he knew about Handley to the investigators. Outside, there was no luck looking for Hanley in the grounds, and after speaking with Elizabeth Gall, a pantry maid, the police knew how much of a head start he really had. The girl had been with another when she passed him on the back stairs of the dining hall. He caught on them both with a good morning as he exited through the rear door just before 8am. A sheriff's warrant for arrest was issued for Handley, with an alert placed out to all surrounding police forces to be on the lookout for a, quote, man of ordinary build, 5'7 in height and 11 stone in weight. He's clean-shaven and has fair hair. At the time of the disappearance, he was wearing a navy blue suit with a light cap. The land around Dykebar was searched by police and volunteers, including all the woodland and farmland even in terrible weather, as the heavens opened. A visitor was to appear at the hospital whilst there was such a flurry, a middle-aged woman who had come to visit her son, Mrs Handley. She'd come from their hometown to see her son, was greatly shocked about the fuss that surrounded him when she arrived. The news that her son was a suspected murderer had a terrible effect on her, 
the frail woman who was known to have been prone to heart attacks answered questions by the police, yet was too distressed to stay in Paisley, leaving to return home the same day. The effect of that day stayed with her, having to be treated by a doctor and placed on bed rest. The rumour mill started incredibly quickly. Where could Robert Hansley be? In nearby Glasgow, the police were informed immediately, as Hansley had been known to frequently visit the city when he was off duty. They visited a number of hotels, railway stations and even the Irish shipping office. On the street though, citizens had their own ideas of where he had gone. One rumour had spread saying that Hansley had been seen trying to book accommodation in the east end of Paisley. And another said he'd been seen in Ardrossan. Some would say that he'd been travelling to Larks, both are coastal towns to the west. By Friday, rumours had said that he'd already been arrested in the early morning at Port Glasgow, yet the police would issue a statement from the headquarters refuting all such claims. They did agree that they believed he had likely left the district, a theory that was supported by him borrowing cash from his friend. Yet, they had no idea where he had gone. That day, the press ran stories about the horrific murder, alongside a picture of Handley that had been issued by the police. Reporters spoke to those who had worked with the 21-year-old, and they would describe him as a man with a, quote, quiet disposition. But the most revealing interview would come from an uncle who lived at Two Townhead Terrace in Old Cumnock, Mr William Archer. He would be quoted as saying, My nephew was born in Dalmellington in 1904. His father and mother came to Old Cumnock shortly afterwards, when Robert was only two years old. After leaving school, he worked for a time as a message boy with the Old Cumnock Co-op Society. He was later employed in various local collieries until the coal strike of 1921, when through his uncle, Mr James Handley, who's the head warder at Crichton Asylum, Dumfries, he obtained a position as a probationer. At this time, my nephew was only 17 years of age. After being employed in the Dumfries Asylum for around three years, he returned to Old Cumnock. During this time of unemployment, he was very studious and was usually engrossed in books dealing with mental subjects. A great change seemed to come over him about this time. He'd always been reticent about his affairs, but from onwards he carried out his reticence to excess. When he visited us, he would rarely open his mouth unless asked a question point-blank. He seemed to grow more moody as the days went on, and one day he alarmed my son David, his cousin, by telling him that he thought his mind was going and that he was becoming like some sort of the patients at Dumfries. In April of this year, however, he obtained employment as a male nurse 
in the Dyke Bar Mental Hospital, Paisley. He was taken on as a temporary attendant for the summer months, with the prospect of attaining a permanency. Six weeks ago, he returned on a visit from Dyke Bar. My brother-in-law, his father, told me he was really worried about his son, who he said that he was more reserved and morose than usual. Mr Hanley said that Robert would sit for hours in his room by himself, rarely speaking a word to anyone. It was whilst people read the pages of the newspaper that at the scene, the police were trying to salvage the crime scene from the elements. As I mentioned, the original search for Hanley had begun quite soon after the discovery of Euphemia's body on the Thursday. But whilst this was ongoing, it had started to rain. And not just rain, but really rain. The scene by Hollybush Farm had been almost obliterated of the evidence that once laid on the ground, the rain destroying the signs of a struggle that it once bore. The area was still under police supervision and a large area of turf had been taken away. The investigators may have been having terrible luck with the crime scene, but they had gathered a clearer picture of the man that they were looking for. Speaking with those that had known him at the hospital in Dumfries, it was discovered that he had in fact been asked to resign from his position. He had been known to exhibit odd behaviour and was fond of a drink. An incident that had occurred one night when he'd been left outside the entrance of the housing for staff, he had to wait for the matron to unlock the door. Instead of doing this, he scaled a wall using the drainpipe and entered through his window. The arrest of Robert Handley was made on one of the main streets in Eyre on Friday, July 23rd, after almost 40 hours on the run. Constable Alexander MacDonald had been on special point duty on New Bridge Street at 10.35pm that evening when he was approached by a clean-cut young man with fair hair. The stranger had addressed the officer, saying, You'd better take me to the police office. Unsure at the tone of the man, the officer, thinking that perhaps he was fooling around, stopped and studied the man before replying, You want to go to the police office? The man simply replied, Yes, but the officer was still hesitant. So the man told him, I am Bob Hansley. Instantly, the officer recognised the name as someone with whom there'd been an arrest warrant issued. So he began to realise the seriousness of the moment. He took the surrendered man with no issue to the local station, where he was searched. The articles of clothing that he'd been wearing were stamped with his name. And the insurance card located in his pocket was also to match the name of the wanted man, and news was sent to Paisley. The moment that the detectives heard, a taxi cab was acquired to escort Superintendent Gray and Detective Inspector Gray to collect their man, with them returning that night. Handley was secured in the Paisley cells by 3am, ready for a court appearance in the morning. The news that an arrest had been made was public knowledge before the morning even broke, and a group of interested individuals had gathered outside the sheriff court in hopes of catching the man. 
The short hearing, though, performed before Sheriff Hamilton, was private, however. Hansley had seemed to be calm as he walked into the room, flanked by two police officers. His smart demeanour did falter, though, towards the end. When he was remanded to Greenock Prison, his face showing his dismay, being flushed before briskly walking away when dismissed. His trial would begin on October 18th of that year, at the High Court in Glasgow. Before the start of the day, large crowds had gathered in Jail Square, the sensation of the case making news across the UK. The four-day hearing did not seem to bother the fair-haired man that sat carefully brushed from his forehead. Dressed in a navy blue charge suit and a dark blue overcoat, the press would call him calm and unfussed, his facade only dropping in the moments of frustration, his jaw noticeably clenching at some of the evidence heard. He rarely raised his head. The proceedings were overseen by Lord Ormydale, and the 15-person jury, including five women, were to be seated as the advocate, Mr Hector Byrne Murdoch, began his opening speech. That speech would last over an hour as he explained the facts of the case. He would explain how Robert Handley and Euphemia Bryden had known each other rather closely, and that after a staff picnic outing, they were seen by the other members of the party walking alone together along the route where Miss Bryden was discovered the following day. He had been the very last person who had seen her alive. He would also touch on the special defence proposed by Handley's defence, Mr Craigie Atchkinson, which stated at the time of the defence he was not of sound mind. It was said that the work within the mental health institutions, such as Dyke Bar, where he was caring for a suicidal and manipulative patient, had damaged his own psyche and that he was beginning to lean on alcohol to deal with his mental health. It was in a moment brought on by heavy drinking, in which he was not in his right mind, that the crime occurred. Mr. Byrne Murdoch disagreed with such. Mr. Byrne Murdoch disagreed with such, saying the crime was during a sexual assault that Hansley had thrown Euphemia down to the ground, causing injuries to her head. He'd also committed further acts of violence, with marks upon her throat, hands and thighs, which lent to more aggression than a simple accident. His issues with drinking too much, as said by him, made him angry, and he should bear the responsibilities of his actions. It would be at this point that he would begin to call his 42 witnesses for the prosecution which dominated over the 18 later proposed for the defence. The first of these would be Euphemia's widowed mother, Janet. She gave emotional testimony to receiving a letter the day her daughter was discovered dead. The 41-year-old also told of how she was informed of the death, stating that she'd been notified by both the matron of Dyke Bar and the police leading to her arrival in Paisley to identify her child's body. One of Euphemia's closest friends at Dykebar, 
Margaret Scolia, was to testify. They had been friends since Euphemia's arrival in early December 1925, and she would also tell of being on speaking terms with Hamsley since his arrival at the Institute in May of 26. In that time, she'd only noticed a developed closeness between her friend and the defendant for around three weeks before the murder. Yet, on the Sunday previous to the outing, they had fallen out. Margaret would say that she knew that the couple were still on speaking terms, and when she was at the picnic, she felt no animosity between them. She agreed that Handley was drinking from a bottle of whiskey, and although he did smell of booze, he did not seem to be under the effects of such. She'd spent some time with him at the picnic, and noted nothing different. She remarked that when she saw Euphemia again, after sitting with Handley at the picnic, Euphemia had joked that she was jealous of her, keeping in good spirits. When the party that had been picnicking together finished up, they embarked on their return journey. Handley realised that he was missing his cap at this point, and Miss Bryden had stopped to help him. They had remained at the back of the group walking slowly. Margaret last saw the pair walking arm in arm. As the group got back to the gate near their accommodations, the couple were now out of sight. Margaret, along with the group, would wait by the gate near the hospital for 20 minutes before retiring to bed, knowing that she had work the following morning. When asked of her opinion of Handley, she said that he was a quiet fellow, gently and kindly in manner. 20-year-old nurse Grace Dodds would also take the stand and collaborate the fact that the couple had been keeping company and at the picnic she also smelt drink on Handley, yet did say he did not appear to be intoxicated. Margaret Victoria Ferguson, another nurse, was also in attendance at the picnic and she agreed that he smelt strongly of alcohol. She claimed that the couple were very fond of each other. The 25-year-old nurse had known the defendant when they both worked at the Crichton Royal Asylum and noted that he did drink regularly, but disagreed with the statement that it was a good deal of drink. Referring to the work that she saw Handley undertake at Dyke Bar, she said that his hours were 6.30am to 8pm and there were three half an hour breaks included. He had been working with an individual described as a, quote, very bad suicidal case and that whilst he was in Paisley, she had heard rumours of heavy drinking on behalf of him but she never saw this herself. When part of the black silk necktie was produced, she positively identified it as the accused's. Other witnesses that were called detailed the relationship between Handley and Euphemia, talking of their walks alone together and being regarded as rather affectionate towards one another. This said in the days leading up to the murder, after they had had that argument, 
they had only been described as being on friendly terms. Donald Ritchie, who was also employed on the same ward as Handley, would talk to the patient that he had been in charge of in the weeks before the killing. He told of the man being very depressed and was actively trying to end his life. This was a constant thing through the ten weeks of Handley's care. Another witness that had known Handley in his previous employment at Dumfries was 21-year-old Alexander McLean. He'd known the defendant for three years and stated that he thought that he was an okay fella and that he never had any problems with him. When asked if he thought Handley drank to excess, he said he didn't think so, and that he'd never come to the opinion of that with his two years at Dumfries, all the time that they'd both been employed as attendants at Dyke Bar. The cross-examination of the witness on the stand would include questions regarding the young age that Handley had begun caring for mentally ill patients. He was asked, Do you know that owing to strain imposed by work of that kind, the accused used to take large quantities of drink every day? To which McLean answered, I heard of it, I never saw it. Alexander McLean had also been the friend that Handley had turned to after the murder, and he would speak to their conversation in his room, where the defendant had borrowed a sum of money from him. He would speak to Handley mentioning Euphemia when he came to his room and said that the young woman had continued to walk on to Barhead. Another male attendant who had been in attendance at the picnic would say that he spoke to Handley on the morning before the discovery. They spoke about the previous evening, both agreeing that they enjoyed it very much. When asked about his companion on the walk home, Handley said that when they got to the gate, they departed, with Euphemia carrying on the road towards Barhead. He told the witness he didn't think much of it, as he believed that she wasn't on duty that day. This same witness would also speak to you the Tuesday, the day of the air races, and the day before the murder, and said that when Hansley had returned from his day out, he'd come across him very drunk. Hansley was so intoxicated that the witness had to assist him into bed. This had not been the first time, and they had previously taken note of the quantities of drink the young man was taking, and requested that he stop for his own good. The final witness of the first day was a charge attendant at the hospital who was working on the morning of the discovery. He remarked that when the news had reached Dyke Bar, Handley was on duty, and the witness had spoken to him about how the murder was such a strange affair, with Handley telling him that he was, quote, out with her last night. He said, as the supervisor for the staff, Handley had to request from him permission to leave the ward. At 7.50am, Handley had just done that, asking to be excused from his duties to collect a collar and tie. 
permission was granted, but the attendant never returned. When asked whether the patient that Handley had been taking care of on the ward could have influenced the defendant's outlook on life or caused him to be under undue stress, he would say that he felt, in regards to that person, that no, Handley would not. The second day of the trial would be halted as a medical emergency befell a female juror who had to quickly excuse herself during the testimony of the arresting officer. The proceedings were halted for 35 minutes whilst a Professor Glaster was to attend to her. After the unexpected delay, the Deputy Chief Constable of Renfrewshire Constabulary, Superintendent George Gray, was to take the stand. He gave details of the police examination that was conducted at the scene, whilst Handley sat with his arms crossed, unbothered by the evidence given. Two ushers would bring in a large piece of turf, taken from near Glenifer Braes, that measured 20 inches by 25, as well as a large stone embedded, hidden deep amongst the grass. The land in which Euphemia lost her life was placed on a table, and it was explained how the movements of the couple could be determined from the blood in the turf. Gray would also speak to the scene 17 yards away, underneath the windbush, where Euphemia had been discovered. It was clear that the perpetrator had tried to conceal the body, and the officer felt that attempts to clean the blood had been made. He then explained further how the body had been disturbed. Her undergarments had been interfered with and her grey tweed coat was spread out and covering her from throat to ankle. He described seeing the young nurse's face completely blood smeared, so much so that her hair had become matted. Her lower lip bore a cut and just below was a free-shaped mark. On her neck, he could see there had also been an attempt to strangle Euphemia, with several bruises formed. The fact that the defence's stance was that Handley had not been responsible for the death of Euphemia due to his mental condition at the time. The prosecution would take extra time to examine this, with expert witnesses being called to the stand. One of these would be one of the most prominent in the psychiatry field at the time, Dr David Kennedy Henderson. He would go on to be knighted in years later for his work, and at the time of this trial he was highly regarded as the best of the best. He was to speak to the accused's mental state, and told the courtroom he was basing his testimony off meeting Handley during September. At this meeting, he would say the accused behaved in a natural manner and was, quote, self-possessed and answering all the questions clearly during the exam. Handley had spoken openly through their time together and gave an accurate account of his life, seemingly honest in his demeanour. He told the doctor that he'd gotten into the habit of drink after taking employment at Dumfries, which he found hard to disengage from. 
He explains that he was drinking heavily as he took up his job at Dyke Bar. Handley described himself as somebody who had a sensitive nature, though when he drank, it raised, quote, some sort of madness in him. That madness, he pointed to, was a plaguing of queer thoughts that did not dissipate. This said, however, from their conversation, the medical man declared Robert Handley sound of mind and fit to plead. He believed the man was sane now and at the time of the killing. Crossed by the defence, however, it seemed that the information provided by the defendant to the esteemed doctor was not true, with Mr Atkinson asking, Are you aware that his statement that there was no mental or nervous disease in the family is directly contrary to the fact? The doctor said he was not aware, though said it was only of importance if it had been a very close relative. Another witness who would be called would be Dr Thomas Tennant, who had formerly been an assistant medical officer at Dykebar, but had since moved to London. He would be called to answer how Handley had come to employment at the Paisley Institute. Mr Tennant would state that he was hired after a recommendation from a member of the board. When he spoke to him after the application had been made, Handley had stated that he wished to undertake medical work, which was something he had not had chance to experience when working at Dumfries. Therefore, he was offered a temporary position to begin in May 1926. Handley was appointed to work on a ward that treated acute patients and the recent admissions. There had been 24 patients with seven staff members on duty. Dr Tennant said that he felt that there was no issue with Handley or his behaviour and found it strange that he'd been described by others as quiet and reserved, as his opinion of him was that he was keen and enthusiastic, a man who always took part in, quote, the sport of the place. When cross-examined, the witness would admit that staff members who had their contracts changed from temporary to permanent employment at Dyke Bar There was no mental health test would be undertaken, even though it was policy to conduct physical exams. Evidence to the post-mortem was provided by Dr Andrew Edgar Struther. He would explain the extent of the injuries that Euphemia had suffered and testified that he believed the injuries to her face had been caused by the defendant bringing down a stone upon her face with considerable force. He believed that her death would have occurred very quickly, if not immediately after the injuries happened. Professor Glaister would also give statements to the court regarding forensic evidence. He examined the clothes of Euphemia, which were produced, and stated that there had been considerable bleeding, and her great coat had been saturated the most, with a considerable amount located on the right side. The defence would open their case on the third day of the trial. Much of the evidence they would present would speak to the mental health of Handley and how they believed he had come to suffer from such. 
One of their expert witnesses to testify was Dr. William McAllister, who was employed at Edinburgh's Morningside Mental Institution. He would speak to examining the defendant on Friday, October 15th, just five days before, whilst he was remanded at Duke Street Prison. Whilst there, he tasked himself with trying to determine the mental state of Handley, currently and at the time of the murder, and spoke with the accused at length. Dr McAllister told of how he felt Handley was intellectually sound, being able to recall and speak clearly, but in his opinion he was irresponsible for his actions, being insane at the time. Asked why he had come to such a conclusion, the witness stated, I took into account his medical history as related by the accused. During the six months that he was home and unemployed, he told me that on one occasion, without any cause, he had brutally maltreated a dog which was his father's. He explained that he had the greatest satisfaction from watching the contortions of the animal. He also told me that during his service at Dyke Bar, this amounted to almost an obsession, and the idea kept reoccurring to him that he might gratify himself by inflicting pain on others. The doctor would go on to explain that Handley had not just gained sexual gratification from the murder of Euphemia, but enjoyed the entire experience of causing pain. He would also say that the defendant had come from, quote, tainted stock, referring to two of his maternal aunts that had shown signs of mental illness in the past. One of these had been in trouble with the law for subsequently attempting to take the life of another woman via strangulation. Talking to Handley's current state of mind, he states that he believed the man was borderline insane and was liable to a breakdown at any moment. How they got to this stage has been hinted at to before, such as in the cross-examinations, in reference to the patient that was in his care in the weeks before the murder. That patient had been referred to as, quote, very suicidal, and the head physician at Rickards Bar Asylum, Dr Mary Knight, was to testify to the court what the patient was like. The male had previously been in her care at another institute in Paisley, and she would describe him as suicidal and extremely strong physically. Whilst he was in her charge, the man made frequent attempts to complete suicide, and when he was discharged on June 15, 1925, he had not recovered. She agreed with the statements made by the defence that caring for the individual would impose serious strain on Handley, especially so if he had been in the same condition as when she had treated him a year before. The effect that his job had on him was crucial to the defence's argument, and they would bring witnesses who would try to highlight the changes in the man from his youth onwards. Hugh Hammond had known Handley since they were boys, both attending the same school and having worked down the pits together. He said that during this time he considered him to be a normal fellow, with no sort of hint of abnormality. 
Hugh, who himself went to be employed as an attendant at Dyke Bar, would say that after he saw his friend take employment at Dumfries, he noticed a change in him. He testified that Handley became more moody and depressed, and that he became more shy. He noted that Handley would not always answer people if they addressed him, and that his eyes started to have a, quote, wistful and queer look about them. Another witness who would speak to the changes that Handley seemed to have experienced after beginning work in the mental health field was the signalman from Old Cumnock, David Reed. He said that in the months that the defendant had been home before leaving for Dyke Bar, he seemed unlike himself. He said, I have no doubt in my own mind that the accused was an abnormal man. He had great fits of abstraction. James Kirk, a labourer from Hansley's native town, would say that just before the accused had left for Paisley, he had seen him sat on a bench alone. Kirk, who had been passing in the company of a work friend, remembered saying, If there ever was a melancholy boy, there is one over there. Handley had only begun his employment at Dyke Bar mere weeks before the murder, and rumour was rife regarding his drinking. This was also touched on by the defence, who called 32-year-old Frank Allen, a fellow attendant, to testify. He was questioned regarding the Tuesday before the murder, which was also the day of the air races. He said that he had gone into Handley's room at 2.30, because he could still see the lights were burning. When he entered, he saw that Handley was intoxicated, half-dressed, scrawled on his bed, and breathing very heavily. Frank would later speak to Hansley about this, but Robert could not remember being drunk. Many had said that Hansley was a quite likeable man, but Quentin Stewart, a vet, who had known him since Paisley, would say that he was, quote, extremely peculiar, reticent, and moody, even making the point that his wife said that she did not like him, than being something off about the 21-year-old. In closing, the prosecution reiterated that Euphemia Bryden would have still been alive if the defendant had not thrown her down when he sexually assaulted her. It was in that action, which was conducted in malice, that the death had occurred, and although there was an option for the jury to reduce the charge, the prosecution believed that was an act of passion inflamed by drink. The defence countered the prosecution's claim that, quote, if the stone had not been in that fatal spot and the girl had been thumped on the grass alone and rendered unconscious, it is very possible she would have survived. By saying that it had been a fatal accident that occurred when Hansley was not in the right state of mind, therefore void of the charge of murder, they finished by stating the defendant was suffering from impulsive insanity and sadism. The 15-person jury would return their verdict on the afternoon of Thursday, October 21st, stating that Robert Handley was guilty of the rape and culpable homicide. Lord Ormydale would sentence the young man to 15 years penal servitude. That brings us to the end of this week's case. And of course, we take time to remember Euphemia. And before I depart, you lovely lot, 
I just want to remind you that I am incredibly excited to be part of CrimeCon UK in Glasgow, which takes place on September 10th. CrimeCon UK, in partnership with CBS Reality, the home of expert-led true crime television, have put together hours of amazing content. There's book signings and talks, podcast row, and even a buffet lunch with the leading names in the community. The organisers very kindly have offered a discount to listeners of the show. So at checkout, if you use the code LADY, you can save some extra pennies. If you do use my code, let me know. I don't get told because of data protection, of course. But if you do let me know, I'll make sure to have a little something extra for you to take away. Now, we've just got enough time to balance out those scales somewhat with a small act of kindness. And this week, I suggest partaking in some litter picking. It is something that I do with my little humans on the regular and does help not only to make the area that you live in look a little better, but it does help nature thrive. So with that, my lovelies, go be good people, go be kind, go be safe. And most importantly, go be happy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.